But now let's get into our study. Believe it or not, those of you who've been following along with us, we are going to finish the book of Jude today. Don't be skeptical. I'm going to do my very best to get us all the way through this last portion of the book of Jude. Beginning in verse 21 through 25, which is the last verse. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Glory to God. Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of Jude. We thank you for the opportunity to study it over the past several months. We ask that as we conclude this book this morning that you would just be here with us, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher to lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, just feed our spirits today. You are the good shepherd and you do feed your sheep. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now you might think or say to yourself, well, isn't that God's job to keep us in his love? But actually we have a responsibility. We have a part to play in this. As we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're born again by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Then God's agape love begins to grow up within us. But we all have, so have a responsibility, according to Jude, to keep ourselves in the love of God, in God's love. Now, interestingly, it does take on the form of a command here. It's not a suggestion. Jude says, do it. Keep yourselves in the love of God. He tells us that we are responsible to keep ourselves in God's love. So how do we do that? I think we saw some things in last week's study that give us some ideas about how to do that, to keep ourselves in the love of God. One, verse 20, we were told, You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So that's also a responsibility that we have. As I said last time, God did the heavy lifting. Jesus did the heavy lifting. He suffered. He bled. He died for our sins. But then when we come to Christ, when we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, we take on that responsibility for the maintenance of our salvation that He has graciously, freely imparted to us. So number one, to keep ourselves in the love of God, we need to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. First and foremost, by building our lives on the truth of God's Word. Remember Jesus told that parable of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. He said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the man who builds his house on the rock. The truth of God's Word, and again, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is revealed to us through the Scriptures. He is the Word. He is the Logos. But we find Him, the truth of who He is and what He's done and what he's going to do in the scriptures that he has imparted to us. So we build ourselves up on our most holy faith by making sure that the truth of God's word is the foundation of our faith. Secondly, we saw last week by praying in the Spirit, praying while guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 20, you beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So there's the Word of God laying that foundation, that solid rock upon which to build our lives. Jesus said, if you hear them and put them into practice. And then thirdly, by waiting. Looking for, or as you wait for, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's the last part of Jude one twenty one. here. Let me read it again. Looking for, or some translations say, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Remember, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We don't deserve to spend eternity in paradise with God, but by His grace, through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, we can indeed 
have eternal life. And so looking for or waiting for, in other words, we keep ourselves in the love of God by building on the truth of God's Word, by praying in the Spirit, and then thirdly, by waiting with an eternal perspective, being patient. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And so we're being patient. We're waiting for His appearing. A lot of people have stopped looking, waiting for His appearing, and they become distracted, and they become sidetracked and sidelined, and they no longer have their eyes on Him. Part of keeping ourselves in the love of God is keeping our eyes on Him and not being distracted by the things of this world. Jesus said, having put your hand to the plow, if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. So these are three key elements, I believe, to keeping ourselves in the love of God. Building our lives on the solid rock of His Word. Jesus is the rock. Not only hearing His words, but putting them into practice. Praying spiritual prayers, which means we have to involve the Holy Spirit in them. They can't be just our own desires, our own wants, our own needs. Spirit-filled, Spirit-led prayer life. And then thirdly, waiting or looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I've already received that mercy. Yes, that's true, but the fulfillment of that mercy will be when we see Him face to face, when we receive our immortal, eternal, imperishable, incorruptible, glorified bodies. And we enter into eternal life. We already possess it. As children of God, we are in possession of eternal life, but we still live in mortal bodies that will ultimately die. So the fulfillment of God's mercy will be when we see Him face to face and we have been given those eternal bodies. And as I mentioned, it's, there's, uh, the day of the Lord involves several things. One, the rapture of the church. That's when He comes for His church. We meet Him up in the air. We join Him return with him to heaven for the seven-year tribulation. The second coming is when he comes with his church. We covered that earlier in this book of Jude when Jude quotes from the book of Enoch, Behold, he comes with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones or his saints. Verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, these false teachers, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And so, to understand the distinction, people get confused. They don't understand. Just like in the Old Testament, the prophets didn't understand that within the same verse in the Old Testament, you could have a prophecy about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ all lumped together. And that's why many were confused when he came, because he came the first time to suffer for the sins of the world. He came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he comes back, he's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah to conquer the wicked armies of this world, overthrow them, and establish his kingdom on the earth. They didn't understand that there were two parts to the coming of Christ. And so when he didn't come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and destroy the Roman legions and kick them out of Israel and reestablish the throne of David... They didn't think he was the guy. And so the same way that the, the first and second coming are lumped together in the Old Testament, we find the same thing true in both the Old and New Testament regarding the second coming has two parts. Part one, he comes for his church. We're caught up to meet him in the air. He doesn't come all the way down to the earth. He will call us up to meet him in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. He comes for His church, and then we will return with Him when He comes with His church at the end of the tribulation. So I hope that clears it up for some folks who may be confused. Again, the same way that the prophets were confused regarding His first coming as the sacrificial lamb, His second coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the same thing is true regarding the second coming being divided into two parts. The rapture with, uh, for His church the second coming with his church. Now, verse 22 of Jude, chapter 1. On some have compassion, making a distinction. NIV makes it a little simpler. NIV says, be merciful, 
to those who doubt. Both verses have their value. We'll look at all of it. On some have compassion, making a distinction. Compassion or be merciful. Again, even as God is merciful to us, not giving us what we deserve, which we deserve, eternal punishment. But if we put our faith in Him, He has mercy upon us, and we don't get what we deserve. I've said it many times. I'll say it again. Don't ever demand that God give you what you deserve. (laughs) Some people think they're not getting what they deserve in this life, but believe me, you don't want what you deserve because what you deserve, what we all deserve, is eternal punishment. Notice the word in the New King James, on some have compassion. And this is where we really need the, the empowering, the infilling of the Holy Spirit because there is godly compassion and then there's fleshly compassion. Godly compassion is balanced and we see that modeled very clearly in the life of Jesus. On some, he was very compassionate, merciful, gracious. On others, like the the religious leaders in Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the hypocrites, he wasn't very merciful at all. He called them out for who they were. On some have compassion. We need God's wisdom to know when is the right time to exercise compassion, mercy, and as we'll see here in a moment, The other side of that coin, with some you've got to use fear. Now, some manuscripts read, convince those who are doubting. Be merciful to those who doubt or convince those who are doubting. So rather than just having a legalistic attitude and saying, well, man, if you don't have any more faith than that, then just get out of here. I remember uh, there was an assistant pastor under Pastor Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, for many years, Pastor Romaine, he was an ex-Marine. And he did a lot of counseling there at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. He and Pastor Chuck were good friends, but they kind of had this good cop, bad cop thing going on. Pastor Chuck was the loving, merciful, gracious, gracious senior pastor. Um, Romaine was the rough, gruff, tough sheepdog of the church, if you will. And I remember one time a friend of mine who struggled a lot with... Um, kind of depression, melancholy type of thing, really struggled in his faith. One time he scheduled an appointment to go see Pastor Romaine. So he goes in and he shares what he's going through, and Pastor Romaine's response was, listen, buddy, shape up or ship out. (laughs) That's a Marine giving uh, counseling in the church. And so... um, We need to be balanced in how we deal with people. But we need to make sure that the compassion that we exercise is a godly, spiritual compassion, not one of our own flesh. A lot of people get into trouble with that, and they wind up making people feel like their sins are okay because we don't hold people accountable with love, with mercy, with grace. So you might translate this verse 21 as... Have or 22, I should say, have mercy on or convince those who are doubting. And so again, rather than just write them off and say, well, man, you got to get your act together. What's the matter with you? Shape up. No, we need to try to minister to them. Pray for them. Pray with them. Share the scriptures. Don't give up on them. I remember examples in the scriptures of other people who struggled in this area. Jesus had gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. They had a great time up there. When they came down, the rest of the disciples were befuddled because they couldn't cast the demon out of this young man. And the demon manifested in this young man in the form of epilepsy, throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the water. The father was pretty upset that the disciples couldn't help him. And so Jesus, he comes to Jesus as Jesus comes down the mountain to see what Jesus can do. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that because it's such an honest response. He says, Yes, Lord, I believe, but please help me. Give me more strength, more faith. Strengthen my faith. 
Help me to believe as much as I need to believe. Help my unbelief. And so Jesus did deliver the young man from his demonic possession. He didn't rebuke the man and say, what's the matter with you? Why don't you have enough faith? There are those in the church today who will do that. If you have any kind of a problem, whether it's a financial problem, a health problem, a marital problem, you name it, they will chide you and say, well, your problem is you don't have enough faith. Or you must be in sin or this wouldn't be happening. That's not the way to do it. Jesus honored the man's honesty and healed his son, delivered him. Romans 14.1, Paul writes, as for the one who is weak in faith, and so Paul acknowledges that, that there will be those, not everybody's at the same level or the same place spiritually, and we need to understand that. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So we need to have compassion on them. We need to have mercy. Try to encourage them. Convince those who doubt. Making a distinction. That's the rest of verse 22 in the New King James Version. What does he mean by that? A distinction between those who are genuinely weak and struggling with their faith and those who are just reckless, blatantly living a double life, as implied in the next verse. Some people try really hard, and yet they still struggle. Other people make no effort whatsoever. And only God knows the dividing line there between someone who is truly a child of God, born again, and someone who's just playing the part. As I have come to use the term, those who identify as Christians. Making a distinction. So, in other words, we can't deal with everybody the same way. This is true whether it's ministering to other people in the body of Christ or if it's seeking to win the lost. I know a powerful message that impacted many people during the Jesus movement days, late 60s, early 70s, really all the way through that decade of the 70s up until the early 80s. But a big part of that message was end times, prophecy, the second coming of Christ. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, was a mega multi-million seller, and there were others. And I know that when I came back to the Lord at the age of 16, God had me going back into my Bible and beginning to read again, and the scriptures that really caught my eye were the ones that had to do with the end times, the last days, and the return of Christ. Because there's nothing more scary than thinking, maybe I'm not ready to meet him. Maybe I'm not ready to see him when he comes, and he could come at any moment. So making a distinction. We're also told in the Scriptures that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so some people really need a gentle touch. They need to experience the love of God through one of God's ambassadors, through a fellow human being. But others, we'll see here, Verse 23, others save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire. Hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Glory to God. <laughs> others save with fear. Or another translation, I believe NIV says, to others show mercy mixed with fear. So I mentioned... The person who's genuinely weak, struggling, needs our help, needs our encouragement. There's the other person who really just not even trying. And then there's the third category, this third group that's somewhere in between. To others show mercy mixed with fear. To these we need to use a mixture of grace and fear. I love you, man, but Jesus is coming soon and I don't think you're ready. That would be an approach to use there. And again, that's why we need to be led, guided, directed by the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to winning the lost or ministering to others in the body of Christ. You know, Dr. James Dobson coined the phrase many years ago, tough love. Love must be tough. 
And Jesus exercised that tough love on a number of occasions, one being when he um, chastised Peter, when Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to be betrayed, crucified. Of course, as I mentioned on Resurrection Day last week, when he got to the part where he says, on the third day, I will be raised, they didn't hear that. They'd already tuned out. But Peter said to Jesus, no, Lord, may it never be so. It's not a good idea to say no to the Lord. We've seen that happen in the Scriptures. Remember Jonah tried to say no to the Lord. Peter was in the habit of doing that prior to the day of Pentecost when he, in Acts chapter 2 when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. When Peter tells Jesus, no, Lord, Jesus says to Peter, here's some tough love for you. Get thee behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. That's tough love. And so making a distinction. Some, yes, they really need that tender, compassionate, gentle type of ministry. And others need a little tough love. Others need some fear. It says pulling them out of the fire. Or snatch others from the fire and save them. The person who's weak and struggling just needs encouragement and comfort. The one who is dancing at the devil's doorstep, as we might say, needs to literally have the hell scared out of them. You know, better that we scare the hell out of them than have them go to hell. And so we need to be led by the Spirit of God. That reminds me, 1 Corinthians here, I can turn there real quick, this idea of being snatched out of the fire... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it talks about the Bema Seat judgment, having our works judged so that we might receive rewards. Each one's work, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3, each one's work will become clear for the day. Again, it's the big D-Day. You remember D-Day from World War II? Well, there's an even bigger D-Day coming. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. It's quite possible while we're here on earth, even as believers, to be doing the right things for the wrong reasons. The wrong things for the wrong reasons. And hopefully... More often than not, the right things for the right reasons, and that's where the rewards will come in. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, it has eternal value, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It would appear some will be recognized in eternity by the scorch marks on the back of their robe. Let's hope we don't have those, right? Man, it smells like a campfire around here. What's going on? Oh, that's you. <laughs> Pulling them out of the fire or snatch others from the fire and save them. So we've got to be willing to be led by the Spirit, to not be too hard on someone who really needs that gentleness, that compassion, that understanding to bring them along, help those who doubt, convince those who doubt. Others, they need to be shaken up. They need to hear the strong word. And we must not be fearful to do that. We must be willing to do what God leads us to do and let the chips fall where they may. The rest is up to God. Earlier in that chapter we just read, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about how one man plants, another man waters, but God gives the increase. It's not our job to save anybody. It's our job to tell people and then trust God to do that work in their hearts. And that's another place where we need to exercise discernment. Is that person ready to hear it? If they're not, Jesus said don't Cast your pearls before swine. If they don't receive your message, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. Sometimes we can do more damage by pressing the issue with somebody that's not ready. We need the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
Too often, I'm afraid, we believers try to do the work of the Spirit in the flesh. We need to be led, directed, guided, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to know when to speak, what to speak, what not to speak, and when to remain silent. And let our lives be the witness, our lives be the testimony. That's really the biggest challenge. Some people really struggle with being able to articulate their faith, to share their faith with others. But you know what? If you can live the life and people can see Jesus in you, that's far more powerful than dynamic than the words you might speak. So Jude is teaching us here that we are not to be formulaic in ministering to fellow believers or to the lost. Every person in situation is different, and we must use the Word of God and the wisdom, guidance, and discernment of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, he says, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You know, I've heard different people at different times saying, well, you know, if I'm going to win those people hanging out in the bars to the Lord, i got to go hang out there too. That's where you're walking a dangerous line. Well, you know, the Lord really put this uh, stripper on my heart, and so I need to go there where she's stripping and witness to her. No, I, I wouldn't recommend that, obviously. Hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. We have to be very careful. We must exercise extreme caution when ministering to believers who have fallen into sin or non-believers who are still in their sins. We have to avoid, the scriptures also say to avoid every appearance of evil. Man, I've been around this mountain so many times with people. Well, we, this guy, this girl, for example, we can't afford to live apart. We live together, but we sleep in separate bedrooms. Really? How long do you think that's going to last? And even, let's, even if it's true, even if you're being honest, what does that look like to those around you? Are you? Is that a good witness? Are you avoiding every appearance of evil? Again, just like going to witness to someone in the bar. Maybe you have no temptation whatsoever. Maybe you can go in there and drink club soda. But what is the appearance? According to the Word of God, we're to avoid every appearance of evil. Why? Because even if you're not practicing evil, if you're giving the appearance, then it's a stumbling block and it's damaging to your witness and your testimony. So we have to avoid in any way, shape, or form giving the appearance that we're endorsing their sins. I just saw here where the, uh, the illustrious Alexandria Occasional Cortex uh, is a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race. If you don't know what that is, that's a TV show about drag queens. By the way, have they been having drag queen story time in your local library? Talk about an abomination. I would encourage Christians everywhere to rise up. In the meantime, God's put a stop to that. There are some good things about this shutdown. There aren't any drag queen story times going on right now. And a lot of other vile stuff. But the illustrious AOC, the epitome of social justice, morality, and virtue, is a guest judge on RuPaul's drag race. We have to be extremely careful not to get involved in those people's sins, give the impression that we're endorsing them, I've talked about this before, but it's such a graphic example, I'll bring it up again. Back in the late 60s, when the Jesus movement was kicking into gear, there was a minister in Southern California, David Berg. He began to call himself Moses David. He was a congregational minister, pretty conservative denomination. But he certainly went off the deep end, and he started a cult called the Children of God. And he taught the young people that were coming into his, quote, ministry to reach out to the lost other young people by having sex with them, to show them the love of God. You see what a twisted, perverted thing that is? That's exactly what we're talking about here that has to be avoided at all costs. And so, we try to maintain a policy here at Calvary Chapel East as much as possible that men minister to men, women minister to women, and if we do have a situation 
where that's not possible or for whatever reason, then we try to have at least two people together there for accountability. But these are the kind of things. And our vice president, Mike Pence, who is an extremely godly, strong, Bible-believing, born-again Christian, has been mocked. He was mocked on a show called The View with Joyless Behar and others. He was mocked because he has a policy that he won't go out to eat with a woman that's not his wife unless she's there with him. He was mocked for that. That's integrity. That's godliness. These are the kind of policies that we need to follow. Because I remember a few years ago seeing a guy that I knew who was, to the best of my knowledge, a strong believer. In fact, I think it happened a couple times. But I saw him in a public restaurant eating with a woman that was not his wife. And even though love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, we should, as believers, think the best about one another unless we have very strong reason not to. A little shred of doubt passed through me just because of the appearance. I mean, I, I, in my heart and mind, I thought, no, everything's okay. But it just didn't look quite right. These are the kind of things we're talking about. We have to be very careful if we want to guard and protect our testimony in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep in mind the context of this book. Contending earnestly for the faith, Jude starts off said it was once for all delivered to the saints, fighting for the truth, because already in the first century when Jude wrote this book, there were false teachers coming into the church. There was deception. There was Gnosticism. There was heresy. Certain men have crept in unnoticed, Jude said, and began to corrupt and pollute the church and deceive people. And many of the difficulties discussed in these last couple of verses that we just talked about are probably the result of deception. That's what happens when people become deceived. And now... Jude concludes his letter with what has been called one of the great benedictions of the New Testament. It starts here in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And this is just the first verse. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling. Folks, let's be honest. It's so important that we acknowledge this recognize this, left to our own devices, we would be stumbling and falling all over the place like a drunken sailor. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we put our faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It's just as if I'd never sinned because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been clothed in His robes of righteousness. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God we're no longer at war with God. We're no longer against God, either passively or aggressively. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The only way to have peace with God is to give our hearts and minds and lives over to the Prince of Peace. Through whom also we have access, by faith again, into this grace. Notice this in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This grace in which we stand, how do we stand? He is able to keep us from stumbling or falling. This grace in which we stand, God's grace, His unmerited favor, we don't deserve it. Mercy, not getting what we do deserve. Grace, getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve the love of God. We don't deserve eternal life in paradise with Him. We don't deserve forgiveness of our sins, but God's grace, His unmerited favor, is that which prevents us from stumbling and falling. So not only do we need to keep ourselves in the love of God, we need to keep ourselves in the grace of God. Never get caught up in the deception that somehow our relationship with God depends upon our performance. That if we, if we do enough good things, if we just behave properly, then God will love us more. No, He already loved us as much as He ever could. For God so loved the world, right? He gave His only begotten Son. 
Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, and if you're watching today and you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has begun a good work in you. There's an old expression. Please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. He's begun a good work in you. And the promise here in Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until with, with this life is over and we go to heaven to be with Him, He's going to keep working in us, working on us, and then when we see Him face to face, we will be perfected. We will know Him even as we are known. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to prevent you faultless before the presence of his glory. And that's a good thing because we can't stand before God unless we are faultless. The reason Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins, God cannot by his very nature allow anything short of perfection into his presence. We could never be able to stand in his presence if we were still steeped in our own sins. We would be immediately incinerated by the power and the presence of God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's a fiery God. We see that manifested throughout the Bible. The only way that we could ever be presented to him would be in a faultless condition. And the only way that can happen is when we're washed in the blood of, lamb, of the Lamb and we're clothed with his righteousness. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory. When Jesus presents us to the Father as one of His children because of His advocacy, He is our advocate, our defense attorney. And this was sealed, purchased with His blood shed on the cross of Calvary. We will appear as faultless. How incredible is that? 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal for every believer, but guess what? In this life, we will never get there. I write to you so that you may not sin. John's giving us guidance, direction on how to live a sinless life. But then he says, and if anyone sins, because he knows we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, thank God for that advocacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There to plead our case. Father, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. I have clothed them in my robes of righteousness. I present them to you now faultless. With exceeding joy. Thanks to the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he presents us to the Father we will know only exceeding joy. Revelation 21.4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away with exceeding joy. And by the way, that's something I've been thinking about for quite some time now, praying about. I feel that so many of us as believers don't seem to be exhibiting that joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. The world has a way of really sucking that joy out of you, doesn't it? But we need to seek God to be filled with His joy because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's our legacy. That's our heritage. That's our inheritance. Joy peace, and righteousness. And the more we can exhibit those things in our lives, the more we're going to be a witness and a testimony and a light in this world for Jesus Christ. I encourage you today, whoever you are, wherever you are, pray that God will fill you with his joy. Happiness is fleeting. According to John Lennon, happiness is a warm gun. And there are a lot of people out there who believe that. Happiness is fleeting. The things of this life that maybe bring us some form of happiness, temporary happiness, 
It doesn't last. First time the new car gets a dent or a scratch, it goes down a notch, right? Not quite as thrilling, not quite as exciting. First time you dump your motorcycle and get a dent in the gas tank, not quite so exciting anymore. Happiness is fleeting. Joy is solid. It's consistent. It's reliable. The joy of the Lord, it sustains us through the trials and tribulations of this life. And it's based upon our knowledge that the things of this world are temporary, the trials and tribulations are temporary, and we can be joyful in the knowledge that one day we're going to be with God forever in paradise, in His eternal kingdom. Nothing can take that away from us. Neither height, nor depth, nor breadth, right? Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Verse 25. To the only God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. Amen. Now the New King James says to God our Savior. The NIV adds the word only. The only. I think that's important. To the only God. So yes, Virginia. Once upon a time it was yes, Virginia. There really is a Santa Claus. But in this case, yes, Virginia, there really is only one true God. No matter what anyone may say, no matter how many different belief systems, faiths rise up upon this planet, there's only one true God. De Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Ten Commandments starts off this way. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me or after me is what he's saying. When it says before me, it means don't you dare bring any of these false gods in front of me. Get them out of my face. I'm the one true God. No God, other gods before me or after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. To the only God. And folks, that just makes it so much simpler and easier. Some belief systems involve a pantheon of gods, a multiplicity of gods. The distinction for Christianity and Judaism, and Islam tries to buy into this too. In fact, that's why Islam was invented the one true faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then fulfilled through the son of David, Jesus Christ. That came from God to the human race. Islam was invented by Muhammad to be a counter-argument to the monotheistic beliefs of Judaism and Christianity. That's why we use the term Judeo-Christian faith, because we all... Jew and Christian believe in the same God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the creator of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Islam claims to be a monotheistic belief system. They claim that Allah is the same as God, but he's not. The Arabic people for hundreds of years, if not longer, perhaps thousands, worshipped a multitude of gods. Muhammad comes on the scene and he sees that Christianity is in a sense taking over the world as the gospel is being spread from Asia to Greece to Italy throughout Europe. The Christian faith is spreading and he wants to come up with his own counter-belief system. And so he looks at the pantheon of gods being worshipped by those in the Middle East that weren't Jew or Christian, and they choose Allah. He chooses Allah, the moon god, to be his one true God. And as we've learned so much from our good friend Avi Lipkin from Israel, 
Ultimately, you could say that Allah might get me in trouble. Wouldn't be the first time. Allah is Satan. Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. He masquer- Any way that he can take worship away from the true God, whether it's through a rock star, an entertainer, a sports figure, or a false god, Satan will take that worship any way he can get it. So the Muslims would agree with us in the sense that they would say, yes, there's only one true God. The only problem is their one true God is not the same as our one true God. Allahu Akbar, many people think that means God is great. No, Allahu Akbar means God is greater. Our God, Allah, is greater than the God of the Jews and the Christians. That's what it means. But our God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the only God, our Savior. Now we rightly look at Jesus as our Savior, but even in the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is called the Savior. Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. Even before Christ came into this world, God has always been the Savior of those who put their faith, hope, and trust in Him. Hosea 13.4, Yet I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. Now, how many of you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel? There was a big face-off. King Ahab and Jezebel had turned most of the nation away from God and towards Baal worship, false worship. There were these 400 prophets of Baal and just one, Elijah. And they have a big showdown on Mount Carmel. And they build this big altar. And they have this agreement. If the prophets of Baal call on their God and he brings down fire and consumes the altar, then Baal is the true God. But if Elijah's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if Elijah's God comes and consumes the altar in fire, then he is the true God. So these guys are whooping it up, dancing around, going crazy. Like we used to see at the airports, the Krishna guys, beating their drums, dancing around, and all that stuff. So here's these prophets of Baal. Nothing's happening. Elijah's standing over there kind of mocking to make fun of him. Maybe he went to the restroom. Really, that's what it says. Uh, Maybe he's taking a nap. And these guys are so frustrated, they start cutting themselves and bleeding and so forth. Nothing happens. So then just to uh, up the ante, Elijah digs a trench all the way around the altar, fills it with water. Uh, Normally, water doesn't burn, right? And so then Elijah calls on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fire comes down and consumes everything including all the water, proving that our God is the one true God. And he's proved it many times over. And by the way, I think I just saw this in a movie the other day, and I've said it many times myself. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. He believes in himself. He knows who he is. He doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. But if you call upon him sincerely, honestly, earnestly seek the Lord he may, where he may be found, then you will come to know him as the one true God. Who alone is wise? So important. Folks, the book of Proverbs is full of verses about this, but there is no true wisdom apart from the knowledge of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no true wisdom apart from the knowledge of God. And even if you don't know him, if you happen to accidentally glom onto some true wisdom, I guarantee it came from him. And all others are just a bunch of wise guys. Apart from God, if you don't know him, you're just a wise guy. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 21. Where is the wise, writes Paul? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Boy, there's a bunch of those out there, aren't there? The disputer of this age. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, the message of the cross, to save those who believe. The only God, the only wise God, be glory, majesty, dominion, or authority, and power. Be glory, majesty, dominion, or authority, and power. It's all about Him. It's all because of Him. It's all for Him. The entire universe is His domain. One of the distinctives of these false belief systems, all the Canaanite religions, the Roman pagan religions and Greek and so forth, they all believed that there were different gods that had dominion over the different elements, the air, the wind, the fire, the water. Remember that? Different gods, Ra, the sun god, so forth. They believed that gods were localized. If you went from one geographical area to another, well, you were now under the, the dominion of a different god. Pretty wimpy gods, huh? Our God has all dominion. He's the master of the universe. He's not localized. He's not geographical. He's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. NIV says, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. I think this is an important part of this verse that we see here in the NIV. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's only through Him that the whole world may know the glory, majesty, power, and authority of the one true God. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we become aware of His glory, His majesty, His dominion, and authority, or power, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There could be some watching today, and you may say, well, I want to know this, God. I really do. I'm tired of going it on my own, tired of being lost and confused and discouraged. I really want to know God. Then you must go through His Son, Jesus Christ. You might say, that's not fair. I'll tell you, it's absolutely fair. God did not have to provide any way for you to get to Him, but because of His love, His grace, His mercy, He has provided a way. Why not just do it His way? Why not accept that gift that He's offering you through His Son, Jesus Christ? God has kept it simple. One way, we've got a new banner on the walls here. probably can't see it on the camera. It's the old Jesus movement symbol. One way. One way to heaven, through Jesus Christ. Before all ages, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages. The American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the International Standard Version, they all put it this way, before all all time. This is another way we know He's the one true God. These other gods are all man-made, invented by men, worshiping the creation rather than the Creator, as it says in Romans chapter 1. Before all time, God is the eternal one, the great I am. Not the great I was or the great I will be. He's the great I am, the eternal one. What do we read at the very beginning of the book of Genesis? In the beginning... Beginning of what? This world. This universe. In the beginning, God. He was already there. He's the eternal one. Before all ages. Now and forevermore. Or for all eternity. I like to say this. Now and forevermore. Right now. I don't care what you see. I think we talked about this last week too. Fixing our eyes on that which is not seen. Well, that might have been one of the devotionals I put online. I think it was. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians, to fix our eyes on that which is not seen. What we see oftentimes is deceiving. 
Things are not always what they appear to be. We're to fix our eyes on that which is not seen. Eternity. The wonderful, glorious promises of God that He has for us, which will last for all eternity. But right now, this very moment, regardless of what you see with this pandemic, with all the other things that are going on, God is large and in charge, and He always will be. Now and forevermore. Finally, one last verse and we'll close. Matthew 6, 13, the Lord's Prayer. Part of that prayer, in fact, the very end of the prayer, the benediction, if you will, as Jesus taught us to pray, Matthew 6, 13, for yours, Father. Well, how does it start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ returns. For years it didn't really dawn on me and then one day I figured out that's all about the return of Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The only way that's going to happen is when Jesus comes and rules and reigns over this world. But it ends, the prayer ends with this. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. How long? Forever. That's what I want to be a part of, don't you? All the kingdoms of this world will come to an end, from the worst to the best. I happen to believe that it's quite possible that our nation, the United States of America, one nation under God, supposedly, founded by great men who are now being vilified and disparaged, great men, we don't really have any like them around today that I can see, not very many, established upon biblical, godly values, beliefs, and principles, sent more missionaries out than any other nation in the history of the world, printed more Bibles, the list goes on and on. I would argue that this is the greatest nation that's ever existed on the face of the planet, but we see now that nothing of this world lasts. Nothing in terms of this world is forever. The kingdoms of this world will all ultimately fall, but God's kingdom is forever. That's the one I want to be a part of, don't you? If you don't know Jesus, I'd like to invite you to pray with me right now and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Follow along after me there at home if you would. Father God, I thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. Father, I admit it. I acknowledge to you I am a sinner. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. Please wash me with the precious blood of Christ and renew me. Make me a new creature, a new creation in Christ according to the promise of your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice for me. Please forgive me. Please come and live inside of me. Be my Lord and Savior. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength to live for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God has heard you. Jesus has heard you. He's come into your life. He's come into your heart. You're born again by the Spirit of God. You are a new creation. You're now a child of God. Now comes your part, keeping yourself in the love of God, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, building your life on the truth of God's Word, being a man or a woman of prayer, led by the Holy Spirit. These are the things. And looking for, anxiously awaiting and looking for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the rest of you, have a very blessed day. I'd like to pray one final prayer for the believers watching today. If you're struggling with health, well, particularly the coronavirus, we hope not, we pray not. Health problems, financial problems, God is there for us, we know that. I'd like to pray with you and for you right now as we close. Father, I lift up everyone watching today, believers from probably all over the world, I would suspect, God, I pray for those who are struggling with health issues that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Touch them, bring healing to their bodies 
and especially if they're fighting this coronavirus, that you would deliver them, heal them, restore them. But Lord, there are many different afflictions out there, and you're the, the great physician. Nothing is too difficult for you. So I pray right now, Lord, for those who may be sick, uh, diseased in some way, injured in some way, please pour out your Spirit upon them, encourage them, strengthen them, heal them. We ask in Jesus' name. I pray for financial provision, Lord, for those who are laid off, out of work. Help them to get the benefits that are available. We know there's been a lot of difficulties getting those benefits to the people who need them. Please unleash and release these financial benefits that have been made available. The unemployment benefits, the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, and all the other uh, things that are happening to help people, Lord. May they get into the hands and the bank accounts of those who need them. Thank you, God, that you are our provider, Jehovah Jireh. We love you, we praise you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a blessed Sunday and a blessed week in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bye-bye.